Hi, this is Ananda, president of the Hare Krishna community near Washington, D.C. What follows is a Sunday talk recorded at our temple. Every Sunday we invite the public for meditation, a talk, and a vegetarian lunch. We'd love for you to join us. More information is available at iskonofdc.org. That's I-S-K-C-O-N of D-C dot org. Thanks, and I hope you enjoy the talk. I welcome all of you to today, today afternoon Sunday program, and I'm grateful to be here. And I'll speak on this topic of reincarnation, reality, rationality, and opportunity. So I answer questions on various online portals through my website, The Spiritual Scientist, and there's a question-answer forum called Quora. So recently I was asked a question. A boy asked this. He says, you know, I love a girl, but somehow our parents are not allowing us to get married. So what karma can I do by which I can marry her in my next life? <laughs> so... This what has happened about reincarnation, that there is this whole, the concept of reincarnation has been romanticized. So I'll answer specifically how I answer that question at the end of this class. But there is this in popular literature, the idea of the soulmate. So whenever people ask me about a soulmate, I say it's more important to focus on the soul than on the mate. <laughs> so sometimes, you know, we take the concept of reincarnation and just incorporate it into our existing worldview. In India, there's a huge film industry in Bollywood. And reincarnation is a common theme in many movies there. So there are two lovers, somehow they're not able to meet, and then both of them die. And next lifetime they're born, and they're born with exactly the same bodies. <laughs> so there's a hero in a double role, the heroine in a double role. And then they were not united in the previous life, they unite in this life. So the idea is that reincarnation, it's just the way it is commonly understood, especially in romanticized conceptions, is that death is simply a transition after which we come back more or less the same the way we are. So basically, the bodily conception of life, where we conceive of ourselves as the body, that is reinforced by reincarnation. By the, when reincarnation is incorporated into a materialistic worldview. You know, once one of my devotee friends was giving a class and he explained, you are not your body. Then some person in the audience asked, if I am not my body, then whose body am I? <laughs> <laughs> so the idea is, I am the body. If I am not my body, then I must be somebody else's body. <laughs> so the bodily conception of life where we identify ourselves with the body is very deep-rooted. And when the reincarnation is added on to that, then such ideas of romanticized, uh, re romanticizing of reincarnation, that comes up. So, actually, we shouldn't re incorporate reincarnation into our materialistic worldview. We need to let reincarnation redefine our worldview. And how does that happen? So, I'll talk about the reality of reincarnation. So there are many scientists who have done research in this field. One of the most uh, pioneering scientists was Dr. Ian Stevenson. And he avoided all sensationalized cases of reincarnation. And he focused on objective evidences. And he found that there are four distinct kinds of evidences. 
first is recollections you know there's a child somewhere in uh, child suddenly starts saying i am i was big then i'm small now normally when we grow up we say i was small then i'm big now a child i was big then i'm small now or suddenly one day the child starts saying mummy i want to go to my other mummy and the parents are psyched out what is going on <laughs> and they remember accurate details you know i was this person here that person there and then when the child is taken to that place after that comes the second phase so first is recollections precise facts and uh, figures about a particular person who had lived somewhere else stevenson would call this as the previous personality and then recognitions means when they have taken over there they recognize okay this is this is my father this is my mother this is this is my room this is my toy like that and not only recognitions there are behaviors and children often behave in ways similar to what the personality in the previous life had behaved and beyond that there are birthmarks and birth defects where there are physical marks on the body which correlate precisely with the location of some fatal wounds that the previous personality had suffered so stevenson wrote many books uh, 20 cases suggestive of reincarnation was his first book and where reincarnation biology intersect was one of his last books and this last book focused on uh, birthmarks so i'll talk about one one typical case here so this is for example if a child a child remembers the previous life in which that child was run over by a truck and the previous personality had died by running over the truck on by being run over by a truck and that run over the leg so the leg is born like this so now these birthmarks and birth defects are very strong evidence because scientists till now know that birthmark and birth defects basically have three causes one is genetic second is that if the mother has some disease during pregnancy or third is the mother takes some some substances which harm the embryo now if none of these three causes are present and in 50% or more than 50% of cases of children with birthmarks and birth defects none of these causes are present so biologically there is no reason why the birthmark should be there and still the birthmarks are there and they are not just some tiny scars they are very distinctive very unusual kind of birthmarks that are there so now i'll talk about one specific case this is of nasib unlutatskiran he was born in adana in turkey and i'm taking this case because he was born in a country in a religion which did not accept reincarnation hmm? he was born uh, in Isla- to islamic parents and at the since the age of of 6 he started remembering a previous life curiously in that life also he had been named nasib his name his name had been nasib budak and he said i am i lived in mersin which is around 80 kilometers away and he said that he uh, had been in he had been killed in a knife attack by an acquaintance he said i want to go there i want to meet people over there and his parents just neglected that for several years they neglected that but eventually as he grew up he threatened i'll go there myself if you don't take me and the parents got a little scared so his mother took him to a town near uh, uh mersin where her father lived and her father had just got married to another to a woman who had lived in mersin and he recognized her immediately and he told her you know you know nasib budak he said yes nasib budak had been killed and he said i am nasib budak and now her grandfather when he saw him speaking such thing he t- took him to the, at that place 
when he took him to that place, he immediately recognized Nasib Budak's wife. And he was a small boy, 8 to 10 years old. But he acted with her as if she was his wife. And he recognized her, she asked several questions, he answered the questions. This Nasib Budak had been in a very short-tempered person. So once he, in an uh, argument with his wife, he had got violent and he had attacked her with a knife. When he had attacked her, she had just moved away, but her thigh had been scarred. And now this was in a private part in her body. And he told the exact location where the thigh is there. So Stevenson got one of his female assistants to take Nasib's uh, widow to a private place. And she noted he had this, she had the scar exactly at the same place. And not only that, although Nasib, Nasib Budak's children were older than Nasib, Nasib Unruthas Kiran, but he treated them like his own children. He was affectionate to the children. And his wife, in the meanwhile, had remarried. So when he saw his wife's photo with another man, he was so angry, he picked up the photo and tried to tear it apart. So now, all these emotions, for a small child to fake them is very difficult. But most importantly, Nasib had six wounds on his body, right from birth. They were birth, birthmarks. And whenever he would speak about his past life, he would say that these are the places where I was wounded, where I was attacked. And Nasib in his previous life had a drunken brawl with someone and that person had stabbed him at multiple places. And all these six wounds which were there on his body, they correlated with the fatal wounds on Nasib's body in the previous life. Now Stevenson, in order to find out how precise the correlations were, he divided the human body into 160 coordinates, XY coordinates. And then he mapped that on. And he found that each of those correlations was precise. That means if there are six correlations, the probability of six correlations happening by chance is 1 divided by 160 raised to the power of 6 is an astronomically low probability. <coughs> now, <coughs> what, do these, what does this imply? Now, there is no alternative explanation. You know, he could not have got it by normal information. His parents were not eager to hear, would not have fed him any information like this. He could not have guessed it. And even if he had guessed it right, how would he ever got the birthmarks on his body like that? So sometimes, skeptics try to say that all this is ultimately must be a fraud. That somehow, maybe the parents, they orchestrated a fraud. But the problem with that is, that actually, Stevenson, right from his beginning, he followed a policy that he would never pay the parents when he was investigating them. Because in the hope of getting money, they might sensationalize the story. So there's no monetary in incentive for the parents. Often these parents come from poor families and Stevenson would subject them to quite a grueling interviews. So they would, ha they would have to often sp spend the time which they could be earning for, for giving the interview. So leave alone getting money, they would be losing money at that time. Not only that, there was no fame involved. There are some popular populist books on the reincarnation which talk about you know, how this film star has been born like this. How There are almost 22 girls who claim to be reincarnations of Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> so, now, these kind of celebrity reincarnation cases, Stevenson usually does not investigate them. He did not investigate them only. Because there is an obvious motive for getting mileage by claiming to be a famous person. 
Now, the children whom he investigated, none of them ever claimed to be uh, anyone famous. They, they had just lived little known on unknown lives. And they had passed on. Now, somebody might say, no, but maybe these cases are among Hindus or Buddhists who want to prove their religious ideology to be true. And that's why the parents are orchestrating the hoax. Well, what about, there are many cases, like this case of Nasip, in which the parents were not believers. In fact, they were disbelievers in reincarnation. And they accepted that the child was a reincarnation of someone else, not because of their religion, but in spite of their religion. And not only that, even amongst Hindus, there is this notion, at least among uh, the rural people, that if a child remembers their past life, that means that soul, they accept the reality of a past life, and they understand this child is a soul who must have been someone in the past life. But they think that if a child is remembering the past life, that means the soul is not properly integrated into the body. And that means the soul is going to leave the body soon. So they have the idea that children who remember their past lives will die soon. And that's why parents actively discourage their children from speaking about their past lives, even if the children uh, do talk about a past life. So either way, there is no religious motive for proving the for setting up a fraud. Uh, especially in a country where most people believe in reincarnation. Well, if a child remembers the past life, well, people accept reincarnation. There's no, no mileage to be got by that. And most importantly, uh, you know, there are often children who exhibit behavior that are embarrassing to their parents. There is this remarkable case of one boy named Jasbir Singh. You know, he was born in a lower caste family. And at the age of around three, he t suddenly one day, he told his parents, I'm a Brahmin, I cannot eat food in this low caste house. And he absolutely refused to eat food. And for the next three years, his father had to pay a Brahmin to cook food from his house and get him and feed him. Now what parent, what child at the age of two or three would claim, I will not eat food cooked in my house. And what parent would set up a child to make a fraud like that? So there are cases where the children's behavior is totally embarrassing for the parents. And the parents would avoid publicizing it, not create a fraud centered on it. So, so the parental fraud is not at all a, a reasonable explanation for many cases. Now, some cases might be questionable, but there are many cases where the evidence is quite persuasive. Now, might there be some kind of investigator fraud? That uh, maybe the investigators themselves wanted to prove something. So Tom Schroeder was the editor of the Washington Post. And he traveled with Ian Stevenson to several places in <coughs> Africa and India where Stevenson actually went and investigated. So he video recorded as well as note, noted down what actually happened in those cases. And this was his statement. Would anyone like to read this? Okay, fine. Oh, sorry. Okay, thank you. Neither self-delusion, intentional fraud, peer pressure, nor coincidence could explain how the children Ian investigated could have known all that they knew about strangers who had died before they were born. So, Tom Schroeder wrote a book called Old Souls, in which he remains a skeptic, but he acknowledges that there is no explanation at the material level for how these children remember. So, now what is the reality? There are two different people 
they are like if you consider mass they are two non intersecting sets there is no commonality between the two yet one the child is remembering specific details about someone who lived and died long ago there has to be some commonality materially there is no commonality the commonality is something non material that is the soul so reincarnation uh, the evidence for past life memory suggests that there is something non material which moves from one body to another as the bhagavad gita says the body is like a dress vasam si jirnani tha vihaya navani grihnati naro parani tha sharirani vihaya jirnani anyani sanyati navani dehi the soul gives up one old dress and takes up this is a person gives up old dress and takes up new dress similarly the soul gives up a old body and takes a new body now <coughs> this leads to a further question okay if this reincarnation is real what does it imply you know how does it matter how does it matter to us what what is the practical implication of this so let's skip some things over here yeah so the rationality if i look at this you know if you look at the mo- most of the movies most of the novels they are all about romance and most romance is centered on the theme of h e a happily ever after now if we consider the bhagavad gita tells us the nature of this world is exact opposite dukkhalem ashashvatam so you are happily ever after dukkhalem ashashvatam so it's the ex- that this world is a place of misery and it is temporary now See, it, actually nothing in this world is permanent even skyscrapers are not permanent even mountains are not permanent even the earth is not permanent and yet we all have a desire to live forever a desire to love forever where does this desire come from you know if a child is born and brought up in africa in some remote tribe and suddenly the child wake one day tells his mother mummy i want a pizza now the mother where did you hear about a pizza there's nothing in the circumstance that can that can give rise to that desire so like that if we were simply material creatures and there is nothing around us that lasts forever then why should we ever get a desire to live forever where does the desire at all come from <clears throat> is an american comedian he said that uh, now i'm not afraid of death i just don't want to be there when it happens <laughs> now it doesn't work like that that is going to happen to us only <laughs> so basically none of us want to die we don't want our life to end So if everything around us is temporary where does the desire to live forever come from it does not come from our circumstance because nothing in our circumstance lives forever our circumstances our surroundings are material this desire to live forever comes from within from our core and that core is spiritual so even from a logical perspective we understand that our desire to live forever points to a eternal core within us which lives forever and which longs to live forever so the bhagavad gita explains that we are all parts of god we are like sparks and 
to look for something lasting to look beyond the impulsive so uh, what the so we can understand that our longing for love needs to be directed towards an eternal object for it to be fulfilled so the bhagavad gita explains that god is the whole and we are all parts of him as parts just like there is the sun and sun has the sun rays like sparks so the parts also give some light just as the sparks give some light but it's tiny so in normal material existence one part is attracted to another part that's how we move on in every species in human species in human form we have the opportunity to become attracted to the whole to develop our attraction to the whole the male female attraction is there in all species as the attraction between uh, even say parents and progeny in every species that attraction is universal and it's not that attraction is wrong but that attraction is simply biological and it keeps us at the bodily level of reality we want to rise to the spiritual level we need to learn to love the eternal when we love the eternal then we attain the eternal we realize the eternal we realize our own eternal nature and we can become elevated to the eternal level of reality So the Bhagavad Gita explains that the eternal is an all-attractive supreme person. He is known as Krishna. The word Krishna refers to not just uh, 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 the God of a particular religion. The word Krishna, if we go normally, we conceive of God in terms of depiction. Okay, this this particular depiction that is God. That's one way of understanding God. But to understand to gain a more universal understanding of God. we need to go back from depiction to definition so definition means that god is that person krishna refers to that person sarva akarshati iti krishna one who attracts everyone that person is krishna that means he embodies all that is attractive in everyone whatever is attractive in anyone that is present in its fullness in krishna ट someone to love and someone to love us and we also want to love someone now this is the nature of relationships in this world and in the human form we have the opportunity to put krishna first not that we give up the other relationships but we put krishna first in our relationship and whatever is that we have a vertical relationship with krishna and we have horizontal relationships with others in this world and the very nature of this world is sometimes some horizontal relationships work out some horizontal relationships don't work out 
So sometimes we may be attracted to someone and circumstances don't allow us to be together. Sometimes we are attracted to someone and then quite often now when we are attracted to someone it is it is like a overpowering infatuation initially. People use the word fall in love. Now why fall in love? Because when you fall it's involuntary. <laughs> you fall a slip and fall. So just as people fall in love, so psychologists say that, you know, romance has a bench life of around 18 months. That means that, 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 that feeling which we get, that hormonal stimulation, which we get on being with someone, that lasts for around 18 months. And after that, if there is not a deeper basis for the relationship, just as people fall in love, they fall out of love. The same people who say, I can't live without you. After some time, I can't live with you. <laughs> so now, beyond the specifics of whatever, whoever has done wrong, we have to understand a fundamental principle. That actually, our heart, everyone's heart is longing for Krishna. Krishna is the all-attractive whole. And we are, in this world, trying to find a substitute for Krishna. And no matter how good any person may be, nobody can ever be a substitute for Krishna. So it is not the problem of that person. It is our own misdirected expectation. So rather than thinking that the other person, whoever is that person should be so perfect that they will fulfill all my dreams for love. You know, we ourselves are not perfect. We can't expect the other person to be perfect. What we understand is we are together not for each other's mutual material gratification. We are together for helping each other's spiritual evolution. You know, I am meant to love Krishna and you are meant to love Krishna. And it is that in that vertical relationship that we will find the lasting satisfaction. And of course, while we are here, we need to have meaningful relationships. But if we put anyone other than Krishna first in our life, we will end up disappointed at best, devastated at worst. Because nobody can replace Krishna. When we put Krishna first, when we connect with him in devotion, we get a profound inner fulfillment. We get an inner security that makes us less emotionally dependent on others. And then that brings greater stability and maturity even in our horizontal relationships. So sometimes... Now, a particular horizontal relationship may not work out. Like this, this boy who asked me this question, you know, what can I do so that I can marry my girlfriend in the previous next life? So sometimes some horizontal relationships may work out, sometimes some may not work out. But whatever it is that is attractive in a particular person, you know, we can think that you know, if this, this feature, this quality, this particular thing, this particular feature, set of features, this person attracts me so much and they embody just a spark of Krishna, how much more attractive Krishna will be? And we redirect our love with full intensity towards Krishna. When we learn to put Krishna first, then our hearts will be fulfilled. Even if specific desires of the heart may or may not be fulfilled. The nature of this world is that some relationships will work out, some relationships may not work out. But if those relationships are what define us, then the failure of that relationship will devastate us. But we see these relationships as a part of our 
our definition, part of our, who we are. And the essence of who we are is our relationship with Krishna. So the knowledge of reincarnation is not meant to romanticize our this worldly relationships and perpetuate them in the next life or replicate them in the next life. The knowledge of reincarnation is meant to help us direct our heart's love towards an eternal object. And when we direct our love towards Krishna by practicing the process of Bhakti Yoga, then this whole cycle of reincarnation, giving up one body, taking up another body, all the bodies that we get are temporary. But when we learn to love Krishna, then because He is eternal, when we love the eternal, then we become elevated to the eternal abode. Where in loving Krishna, in His eternal abode, we can have our happily ever after with Him. So I'll summarize what I spoke today. So I spoke briefly about how the <coughs> concept of reincarnation, reincarnation, the romanticization, the reality and the rationality of it. So the, the romanticized idea is we conceive of concept of soulmate, but focus on the mate rather than the soul and try to perpetuate uh, the romantic relationship with this life. The reality, however, is that reincarnation is a very serious thing. It's not just some, some movie fantasy. There is serious evidence for it. I discussed four levels of evidence. Recollections, recognitions, behaviors, and birthmarks and birth defects. The case of Nesip, Unlutaskiran, where he recollected life as Nesip Budak. He recognized his widow and his children from a previous life. He acted jealously towards his widow, his widow's new husband. He acted uh, affectionate towards his children, although they were older than him. And his six birthmarks, which were astronomically low probability, one by one sixty raised to the power of six. And <clears throat> there's neither investigator fraud nor nor parental fraud can work because often the children exhibit uh, behavior that are embarrassing to their pa uh, parents. And then rationality of reincarnation is. That although everything around us is temporary, still we have a desire to live forever and to love forever. Where does this desire come from? Like an African child suddenly want a tribal child wanting a pizza. Nothing from the circumstance brings it. So it comes from our core. So our core is spiritual. And that soul is meant to love the whole who is eternal. And that eternal, all attractive person is Krishna. So loving other people in this world is something which we have been doing, which the soul does in every species. In the human form, we have the opportunity to direct our love towards the eternal. And the, whatever is attractive in anyone in this world, that attractiveness in its fullness is present in Krishna. So if, if we try to make any one relationship of this world the defining relationship of our life, and we are trying to put that person in the place of Krishna. And however good or bad the person may be, that attempt to substitute Krishna is going to leave us at best disappointed, at worst devastated. So instead if we put Krishna first, then we will have the maturity through our fulfillment in our relationship with Krishna to balance the ups and downs of our horizontal relationships. And when we learn to love Krishna, by practicing bhakti yoga, when we love him more than the world, then he takes us out of this world for us to be with him happily forever. Thank you very much. Hare Krishna.
are there any questions hari krishna yes prabhu just want you to check uh, as you said like uh, the karmas the, the people who can remember in their you know this life about the past life hmm. those person have done anything you know any particular type of karma that they can remember in this life okay thank you bro so if people remember their past lives is it because they have done some special karma not exactly special karma just like um, different people have different memories memory capacity in this life now some people can remember something which they have experienced or read or heard 10 years ago some people forget what they did 10 minutes ago this variation in memory is just a result of is is a feature which we see even in this life and that's because of different karmas some people who have done a lot of good karma they remember long term other people they may remember very short term now remembering one's past life is a result of a peculiar karma it it's not necessarily always good karma it's not necessarily bad karma because for us the idea of somebody remembering a past life may be very attractive oh it was so fascinating to remember a past life but for the children it is quite disorienting you know who am i you know am i that child or am i this child and usually the children remember that maybe there is 3 4 5 from that age they start remembering and by the age of 8 9 10 at the most they usually start forgetting and that's how the soul integrates into this body so it's a it's a peculiar combination of karma uh, because of which the children remember their past life that's from the karmic point of view from the physical point of view usually most of the people who remember their past karma they have had violent deaths sudden violent deaths so the soul does not get the time to process the event of death and when the soul dies the soul leaves this body and goes into the next body but the soul has not processed that event properly and because of that when the soul goes into the next body the soul is still just like we have a jet lag sometimes when we go from one time zone to another the body is eating sleeping mechanisms are still in that previous time zone so like that there's a body lag so because of the body lag the soul is in a new body but the soul is remembering uh, life in another body so it's a peculiar combination of karma it's not as it can sometimes be good karma it can sometimes be bad karma depending on how it affects the child does that answer your question thank you any other questions yes please prabhu very nice talk i have a um two part question you can answer either one so i think if i understood you we have a deep longing for being connected to the whole to something eternal yeah. that's our deeper longing and that loving horizontally people it's it can be it can be nice but it can also be disappointing yeah so because people are conditional god is not conditional yeah so but you did say we long for krishna who's a person yeah i'm a little, having a little trouble with a person because it's conditional okay. that's the first part and the second part if you don't want to answer that one is in the end we according to the gita i'm just trying to learn we're coming in and out of bodies to to get to somewhere eternal yeah with all due respect who's come back to tell us that because if they're there how did they not they didn't come back to tell us okay so please either one thank you okay fine so if we are going to be fulfilled by loving krishna 
and he is uncondi- he is unconditioned we are conditioned then how ca- how can he be a person see the personality personality itself is not the cause of conditioning it is material personality that is the cause of conditioning see god himself is unlimited no that's what i'm saying he's unlimited but our conception of what causes limitation we often think of okay i'm a person say you are sitting here you are sitting there i'm sitting here now if you are sitting there you cannot be in your house so you are limited so now we think of limitedness as associated with personality but actually limitedness is associated with material form it is not necessarily associated with personality I'll give a simple example so we think that for something to be unlimited it should not have any form it should not have any personality but say now the uh, we we are in a building this building has a particular form if say this building is destroyed it will crumble into a formless heap now will the heap be limited or unlimited limited so it is not that form causes limitation and formlessness brings unlimited state limitedness is a feature of matter material things whether they are with form or without form they are limited god by his very nature is not material he yeah god by his nature he, he is not material he is spiritual and spirit has the capacity to be both universal and localized so god has many aspects just like the sun is situated at one place but at the same time sun radiates its rays everywhere so like that god has a personal manifestation which is localized at the same time god has his power and presence spread everywhere so the limitedness does not limitedness of personality that limit that limits us uh, that is because of the material level of reality at which we are spiritual level of reality it is it has the potential to have form it has the potential to have personality but be unlimited because otherwise if we look at it that if we say god to be limited unlimited should not be a person but not being a person not having a form is also a limitation isn't it to say that god does not have something that is a limitation so <laughs> in that sense the conception of limitation that we have that itself is a limiting conception so we need to change our conception of what comprises limitation god being a omnipotent being he can have a form and still he can be unlimited and in krishna leela there are many examples krishna was a small child on his mother's lap and he thought he's a small child but krishna yashoda may ask krishna to open his mouth and he opened his mouth and she saw the whole universe in his mouth and in the universe she saw herself and she saw krishna in that universe also so even when god is inside the universe the universe is inside him <laughs> okay thank you <laughs> yeah thank you krishna um i'm going to ask a question and excuse my ignorance we're talking about reincarnation here and i always seems uh scientists as the people who try to create a, a a way of thinking 
to keep people away from reality, okay, in this case, um, if they know that we're looking for God and we're trying the hardest we can to get connected with God, scientists are right there trying to avoid you in order to reach that goal. My question is, those scientists can be the demons before and they're reincarnating at this time in order to not allow you to go to God? <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So scientists often keep us away from reality. They don't allow people to go towards God. So might the scientists uh, be demons in the previous life who have now become scientists? <laughs> See, first of all, you know, it's, uh, it's not at all healthy for us to judge people based on their previous life. You know, because we, have, we are meant to function in this life based on how people are acting in this life. Now, if we start attributing everything to previous life, where will it stop? You know, if a king, if a thief robs a person, a citizen, a citizen goes to the king. And the king says, you know, you are robbed because of your past life karma. You know, if a baby is crying, should the mother think, the baby is crying because of his past life karma? No. We, when we are dealing with people, we shouldn't get into, we shouldn't judge people based on their past life karma. That's the first thing. Now, we should simply respond to them based on how they are acting. And it is not that scientists in general are atheistic. See, science, especially modern science, uses a particular methodology for understanding reality. And that methodology is that science looks for material explanations for material phenomena. And in, because it looks for material explanations for material phenomena, it, science inherently does not talk about anything non-material. So, for example, when Newton saw the fruit falling, you know, Newton himself believed in God. But at that time, he did what, what made the fruit fall? He could have said it is God, which is true ultimately. But he was looking for a material mechanism to explain that. So, and he came up with gravity. So, science has a particular focus. It looks for material explanations for material phenomena. It's simply a tool for acquiring knowledge. Now, unfortunately, over the centuries, as science has acquired more and more knowledge, uh, some materialistic people, especially some atheistic people, they have misappropriated science. And then they use it, use science to propagate atheism. So, I mean, science is a tool for acquiring knowledge. Science in itself does not say anything about God because science looks for material explanations for material phenomena and God is a non-material reality. But science is of sometimes misappropriated by atheists to promote their own ideology. But science in itself does not make any statements about God. It just does not deal with God directly. Now, the important thing for us when we are dealing with scientists is that we are not meant to demonize people. Yes, Srila Prabhupada, and often he would strong, speak strongly against scientists. But if you look carefully, his critique was against their atheism. There's one conversation uh, on LA Beach where he had, he says, we are not against the knowing spirit of scientists. We are against their atheism. So when some scientists extrapolate from valid scientific findings to extra scientific extrapolations, and they make statements about the non-existence of God. That is where our problem comes with them. So now why do they do this? You know, quite often, 
people have certain experiences with certain religions. Now, if you look at some of the atheistic scientists, and you look at you know what kind of religion they experience, they experience some irrationality, some superstition, some religious violence. You know, it is quite possible that if we had gone through those experiences, we might also have become atheistic. So people make choices based on their intentions, also on their circumstances. So we should give people the benefit of doubt. It's not that we are against science. We are for God. And science as a tool can be used to point towards God. It can be used to point away from God. So our focus should be on the evidence that points towards God. But we don't demonize any particular people. We recognize that today science has a lot of influence. Scientists are intelligent people in their own right. And if science is understood properly, it can be used as a tool to help people to point towards God. Science cannot decisively point towards God, but it can, it can lead an inference towards God. So the important thing is we don't position science and God as competitors. Actually, God is the foundation of science. God is not an explanatory alternative to science. God is the explanatory foundation for science. Because science also operates on faith. How is that? The faith is when Newton saw the fruit falling. He asked what made this fruit fall? That, that, the question, his answer, finding the answer of gravity, that's his brilliance. But the very asking the question, what makes this fruit fall? That means that he is assuming that things don't happen by chance. That there is some order over there. Now where does this order come from? So science can explain nature. But the explainability of nature requires an explanation. And that explanation for the explainability of nature, that is God. So science and God are not competitors. God is the foundation for what science can explain. And if we, if we position science and God as competitors, unnecessarily we are creating tension. Uh, so what we need to do is, science can give material explanation for material phenomena, but the explainability of material phenomena, that comes from God. And if we present it properly to scientific people without being value judgmental, then many scientific people also appreciate this point. And they can also use their intelligence for exploring beyond matter and moving closer to God. Does that answer your question? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.